Well, good evening, everyone. I think we'll get started. It's great to have you here. My name is Doug Fullington. Uh, we have a lot on the program tonight. We've got four works to talk about. As always, I'm really happy to take your questions anytime, and I'll, I won't go on so long that I don't have time at the end for more questions, because that's really enjoyable and fun to have the discussion and the back and forth. But uh, I'll go ahead and talk about these in the order that we're going to see them. It's great, especially this time, the program has lots and lots of information. Sometimes we, there is less space available in the program. This time, everything's there. So I'd encourage you to have a look. There are a couple things I'll point out as we go along. Hey, So we have two, two, two back-to-back before the first intermission. Interesting, this program, just briefly to start out. Each piece is very different, but there are things that hold them together, and not all of them are intentional. But there's a similarity of look. Costumes tonight are going to resemble the clothes you and I are wearing more than they are what we would think of as traditional ballet costumes. We're going to see those in a few weeks in Swan Lake. Tonight, it's more clothes. You're going to see sneakers, socks, tank tops, shirts and pants, all those kind of things on stage. So that unifies the works as well. Uh, the music is really interesting. Our oldest piece is Bernard Hermann's score for Psycho from mid-20th century. We all know the famous parts, but it's got a lot of beauty to it as well. And a couple uh, dances uh, who have, uh, that have music drawn from albums. One from the early 80s, and it really sounds like it, and another from just 10 years ago by Dan Deacon. That's going to be for the last piece. Even visually on stage, you'll notice in Crystal Pite's plot point, there are a lot of two-dimensional kind of mock-up sets. They're just white. They are an outline. They show us a house or street lamps, but also in the first work by Robin Maneka Williams, curtain goes up and there's a facade of a house. It might look like the house that you or I have. So there are some similarities. There's a real contemporary feel, an everyday and kind of pedestrian feel to some of these works, but at the same time, each is quite unique. So let's start with the first one. It's brand new. It was just made for us. It's called Before I Was. It's a duet in three sections, but there's a lot more on stage than just the duet. The choreographer is Robin Maneko Williams, and she'll, you'll read in her note that she was inspired well, by the pandemic. We're seeing a number of artworks come out that respond to what the last two years or the ongoing uh, environment is like. For Robin, it meant more time with her seven-year-old son. And she really, I think as many of us do when we spend time with kids, you really marvel at the things that they marvel at. Maybe they're things that at this point in our life we take for granted, maybe we, we just zoom past them and don't see them, but children sometimes see more than we do. And I think she saw that in her seven-year-old, and uh, that experience has inspired this work. It's uh, in three sections. The first section is intended to be a commentary on those childhood years. Second section, the teen years, a little more angst, a little more uh, disruption maybe, and then the adult years maybe an arrival point, or hopefully. So we'll have our two dancers on stage at all times tonight, Christopher Dariano and Leah Tirada. 
but throughout the work, we will see their younger selves on stage. Two students from PNB School, uh, William Schlupp and Margaret Carlin. And you'll know that they're the youthful counterparts of Chris and Leah because of what they're wearing, very similar. Uh, but then there's two more people on stage, and they are Macy Stewart and Seema Cunningham. Not only are they singing, they wrote the score and the poetry that they set the score to. So they've sort of, all the music is done by these two uh, women on stage. And like the children, they come on and off too. Maybe they're a little bit like us. Maybe they're like the audience that is sort of observing what's going on, except they have their different vantage points around around the stage. Robin's style is a style we see a lot of coming out of the Hubbard Street dance uh, uh, group in Chicago. Uh, Penny Saunders was involved there. Alejandro Ceruto was involved there. Uh, Robin Mineco Williams danced there as well. It's a style that favors a lot of fluidity in the movement, often with socks. Socks allow you to, you can slide on the floor. It really helps with that that lyrical, very smooth movement. Not a lot of jumps, but there are lifts. And what I find in the uh, duet dancing and the partnering, like we'll see tonight, uh, almost constant contact between the partners. And not always the traditional kind. You know, you can hold hands or hand around the waist or hand on the shoulder. But you also have elbows and you have feet and you have necks and heads. There's a lot of options for uh, partnering and, and maintaining that connectivity. And uh, Robin really explores those. Uh, in the last piece she did for us, The Trees to Trees, we also had a domestic setting on stage. It was a living room. There was a singer on stage and there was a newly commissioned score. I don't think she was attempting to replicate that with, the, with this piece, but she does have this new composition. She has the singers. The composer is on stage with her, and we are, uh, we have the house facade. For me, it's a garage door and a front door, and there's a table in between. When the curtain goes up, uh, William and uh, Carlin, uh, Margaret, excuse me, are playing rock, paper, scissors. So again, that pedestrian, everyday element that I think brings us in, but the dance along with it. I do encourage you to read Robin's notes, and the composers also have written notes in the program that are, that are valuable and give some perspective. So that's our opener, and then we have a short pause, and Peter Bull will come on stage. He's going to talk about next season, which is our 50th anniversary season. PNB was incorporated in 1972. We didn't really start performing for a few years till the mid-70s, but nevertheless, it'll be our 50th anniversary season next year. A lot of things to look forward to, revivals and new works. And then after that, we have uh, a solo piece. And if you've been coming for a while, you'll know that Peter has acquired a collection of solos that he sort of peppers throughout the programs as we go through the year. Everything from State of Darkness, which is the half hour long solo to Stravinsky's Rite of Spring, which is a real tour de force for the soloist and the orchestra to um, The Calling, which is a very uh, minimal solo, very beautiful and atmospheric. One dancer, uh, medieval motet is being sung. It's very uh, meditative. And then we have Caught, what you're going to see tonight. Caught is the signature work of David Parsons. David has been involved in contemporary dance uh, since the um, 
Wow, 40 years now, 40 years plus. Caught was made in 1982. In 1985, David formed David Parsons Dance. It's really been a force in contemporary dance in the US since that time. He's also been involved with the Alvin Ailey Company, with Barishnikov and his White Oak Project. David's been involved in a lot of the uh, movements in contemporary dance. Caught came at a really particular time. David was experimenting with that idea of a dancer in the air. And we, we often will describe a dancer, well, it was just like they were flying when they jumped. Sometimes dancers have that, what we call ballon, where they get up in the air and they kind of freeze in the position and they travel through the air and they give us that sense of flight. Well, David was wondering, can I prolong this or can I give the illusion of flight? Can we keep the dancer in the air without rigging them up to the rafters? Well, he experimented with a strobe light effect. And just warning, if, if strobe lights are, uh, do create a difficulty for you, um, the second half of this piece is about three minutes of full stage strobe. So um, I want you to be aware of that. I know there's a note in the program. But um, what David does, and it's okay to, to give away how this works because I do think it's part of the fun. The dancer controls the strobe light. So the dancer will do a particular jump multiple times, usually traveling. It might, we might see them moving forward towards us. We might see them traversing the stage. We might see them circling the stage in big grand jetés. But the dancer's goal is to click the strobe so we only see them in the air in that full extension. We don't see them jump and we don't see them land. It looks effortless. It's not effortless. <laughs> and then there are these moments of respite where they're in the middle of the stage and the full lights come on, as if we have to ask ourselves, did we just see what we just saw? It's very cleverly put together. It's all danced to uh, uh, another experimental work, this time a piece of music by Robert Fripp, if you know uh, King Crimson. Robert Fripp was in King Crimson in the early 80s. He was experimenting in the studio with acoustic guitar and the recording effects you could get by playing a solo over some preset tracks. This was using some newer technology. You'll really hear it. When it starts, you'll, you'll go back 40 years. These are the kind of sounds we were, we were hearing coming out of pop and rock and experimental studios at that time. So it, this is really a marriage of experimentation, both in music and in dance. It's not a long solo, it lasts about six minutes, but uh, it's really a moment in time, and it's a great way to feature dancers. And tonight you're gonna see a dancer you really well may not know. She's an apprentice, her name is Melissa Williams. Uh, I have not seen her in this. All reports out of the artistic office are that she's terrific. Uh, Melissa came to us in 2019 as a member of the professional division in the school. Usually students will spend two years in the professional division and then be auditioning for a job. Uh, Melissa was offered a job by Peter Bowl here in the company, so it's really exciting that uh, uh, she finished her training here and now she's in the company and you'll get a chance to really see her featured in this solo. And now I've talked about as long as the solo lasts and then we have our first intermission. Now when we come back, plot point. Now just singular plot point. Now I know the program's called plot points because we're encompassing four works, but just so that we're all clear. The title here is plot point. And how many of you have seen plot point? Okay, maybe half of us. Okay, this helps me sort of gauge what kind of uh, information to give. 
like Kant, not similar, but like it for me, um, I think it's helpful to have some background on this piece. It's a dense work and there's a lot going on. And I really encourage you to read Crystal Pite's note in the program. For me, it's an extension of the work. She explains what she's going for. She's a choreographer that always sets a challenge and a goal for herself. And she's often inspired by really unique ideas. If you've seen her ballet Emergence, full company piece that we dance, she was really exploring some ideas from some recent research about the behavior of insect communities. If you've not seen it, you may be thinking, okay, how is that going to translate into movement? Well, she, Crystal asked herself that, and, and these are the kind of uh, challenges she poses. With plot points, she had the opportunity to make a work with live music, which she didn't always have. In many really small companies, there simply is not a budget for live music, particularly if the company's relying on touring. That's the case with Crystal's Kid Pivot. Uh, but in this, which is her uh, dance troupe, but in this case, uh, she was able to have live music and she gravitated toward film music and picked Bernard Hermann's score for Psycho, as you would. Um, <laughs> I love the score. Of course, there's the famous reet, reet, reet parts that we know, but there are beautiful sections of pathos and real beauty. It really has a big scope of emotion, as we'd expect from a film score. Because it was set, you know, it was written in the mid-20th century, she gravitated toward a film genre, film noir, also from the mid-20th century. And she started creating a storyboard. You'll read about this in the note. And she realized with the storyboard, one, it only really, the storyboard gives you sort of a two-dimensional idea of characters and story. Maybe they're stick figures. But they aren't going to be three-dimensional, unless you're building a model, okay. But uh, generally, you have a two-dimensional idea of what, you, what you're going to move ahead with. Also, she realized the story elements were what she calls plot points, the kind of tropes or narrative ideas that say we just turn the TV on and it's in the middle of a show, but if we watch for maybe 20 seconds, we kind of know what's going on because it's a story that has repeated narrative elements that we're used to seeing. Maybe it's as though, take Agatha Christie and all her mysteries. If you've read like 10, when you read the 11th, you have a sense of how Agatha Christie puts the story together. You kind of know the types of characters you're gonna get. This is what Crystal is working with, these narrative tropes. And if you think of film noir, there might be a chase scene. There might be that mysterious briefcase that gets handed from different people. Is it full of money? Is it full of jewels? Uh, the domestic scenes, the very stereotypical mid-century, husband's coming home from work, the wife's in the kitchen making a cake. Uh, but in a film noir, you know that that's probably a facade and maybe all isn't well. It's great to be really ready when the curtain goes up for this piece because we get an introduction to these narrative tropes or these plot points. We're introduced to some characters that I'll explain in a moment, but there are projections that tell us act one, and this plot point, and this element, and this element, act two, and so forth. And you'll recognize them all, but then you will have this uh, repertory of, of storylines that Crystal's going to pepper throughout this piece. Let me grab this. 
What happens here, though, is there's no beginnings and no ends to these stories. We're sort of plucked from one to the other. Okay, so that's one element. Two, let's go back to the storyboard. Crystal also thought, can I show the two-dimensional characters, kind of these models or replicas, as she calls them, can I have them on stage, and can I also have their fully flesh and blood, three-dimensional counterpart at the same time? And that's what we've got on the cover here. Here are the replicas. They look pretty two-dimensional in that they're all, they're just white, they're sort of whited out, like they're drawn on a whiteboard, and they've got no face. They move in a little bit of a robotic style. It's all very stylized, just like any storyboard or set of stick figures would be. Each of them has a flesh and blood counterpart that's wearing clothes that have color. And you can see their faces. And they uh, sort of act more fully, and their emotional range is, is broader. Sometimes we only see the replicas act out a scene. Sometimes it's the flesh and blood 3D characters. And occasionally you see a replica and their counterpart together, which is really interesting. And you get that juxtaposition. Uh, so the whole piece, from beginning to end, is just an exploration of what can be shown on stage. What are dancers able to communicate? Uh, is an audience able to identify these different plot points that we all know through our shared experience of reading, watching, and listening? Uh, what else do I want to say here? I guess that's about it. Oh, one more thing. I love the gestures. I work a lot in 19th century ballet, which had a set of codified gestures, like uh, pointing your ring finger. It means uh, marriage. You're going to see that in Swan Lake in a couple weeks. But there were also a lot of natural gestures. Here, Crystal has also developed gestures, particularly for the replicas. And it's amazing how much can be communicated without words and just with gestures. And that also calls on our shared experience of talking with each other, or me sitting up here using my hands to talk, and just what, how we're used to communicating. So these are all of the things explored in Plot Point. So just know you're not missing something if you weren't quite <laughs> carried from beginning to end with one plot line. We're seeing elements of plots and how those can be uh, recognized and how those can be communicated in different ways. Okay, I'm going to leave it there. I find it just fascinating, and I sort of think of it as movement theater. That's sort of my, the term I use for plot point. All right, second intermission, and then we come back and we get a lot of dancing in The Times Are Racing by Justin Peck. Uh, this is a work that was made for New York City Ballet, where Justin has been the resident choreographer and now is an artistic advisor. This was made uh, five years ago. It's uh, how to go into this one. I think this isn't a leap, but it may sound like it. Who has seen the new West Side Story directed by Spielberg? Okay, so that's out now. If you didn't see it in the theater, it's on Disney Plus and HBO Max. This is not a commercial. But that's where you can see it. Justin Peck is the choreographer for the new West Side Story. Big shoes he was stepping into because the Jerome Robbins choreography is iconic. The choreography for the 1957 stage version of West Side and the 61 film. But Spielberg wanted to make a new version, same story, same score, and Justin was called in as the choreographer. If you watch that, you will see 
Justin's ability to create that sense of community among, among the sharks in America or among the jets in the jet song toward the beginning. I feel like that's one of Justin Peck's great strengths and you really see it on display in the times of racing. Here's a group of young people that is clearly a banded together community. You'll see them in all kinds of configurations, but it's particularly powerful when we've got the whole group. Um, within the group sections, then, there's a quartet, and there, is, uh, there are then two duets. The first duet is a sort of quasi-tap duet. This is what we call a sneaker ballet. Everyone's in white sneakers, and uh, there's a sort of tap duet that Justin actually made for himself and his friend Robbie Fairchild, who was a principal at New York City Ballet. Now Robbie's got a Broadway career. And then there's another more sort of, a uh, little bit more lyrical, smooth duet that follows. Uh, these are roles that aren't, don't have a particular gender specified for them. Any individual can dance these, any kind of pairing. And we've had a variety of pairings uh, of dancers, as well as uh, principal dancers, all the way uh, through the ranks of the company to apprentice dancers. And I think we've got some premieres tonight. Um, Genevieve Waldorf, she's done it before. Last week she is in the uh, Robbie Fairchild role. Amanda Morgan is in the Justin Peck role. Uh, the second duet is Luther DeMeyer and Ashton Edwards. Ashton is a, an apprentice. So we've got a couple of apprentices featured tonight in, in this particular uh, rep. Uh, speaking of Amanda Morgan, she'll be the guest with Peter Bowl after the program down here for our Meet the Artist session. You are all welcome to come to that. It's a great way to let the garage empty out of cars. I uh, also know Billie Eilish is at Climate Pledge. Not assume it's going to get out later than we're getting out. We're going to get out just ahead of 10. But um, anywho, uh, you are welcome to come down and talk to Amanda and talk to Peter. Uh, Times of Racing are set to Dan Deacon's music. Dan Deacon came out with an album in 2012. I think it's called USA or is it called America? I'm going to forget. I think it's USA. This is set to the last four tracks. Very upbeat. Very upbeat. Very danceable. And uh, Justin really goes to goes to town with the choreography, but I really love the sense of community, the sense of uplift, and the sense of hope that we get from this group of dancers on stage. I think they feel it, I think it's palpable, and I think vicariously we'll experience it in the audience too. All right, those are our four works. I did leave a little bit of time, so I'd be, I would be happy to answer any questions you have, discuss anything that you would like. Uh, sure, Jim. I wanted to ask about Plot Pointer, Crystal Plate, and this this was last done here, was it in 2017? Yeah, we last did Plot Point in 2017, which was our first time. So I was going to ask, although I already asked James last night, uh, whether she was here to, uh, to, to restage this one. So uh, Crystal was going to be here for the last bit which often is the case when we revive a work or do a new work, a choreographer will often send a representative, we call them a stager, it's the person who teaches everybody every part. And then the choreographer may come in for that last week when we get on stage to really bring things to performance level. 
Uh, Crystal at the last minute wasn't able to come, but because we're all so good at Zoom now <laughs> and have very large screen TVs, she was Zoomed on the stage and in the studio, I think. Uh, she is extremely meticulous. I was saying earlier, I think she'd be a great film director because she really sees the totality of a stage work. Uh, lots of uh, thoughts, corrections we call them, but they're more options and encouragements for the dancers. Yeah. And then the other question was, looking to next season, we have a, a new Crystal Fight work. Now this is a, a PMB premiere, but it, it has already been Yes, we are. Uh, the point is that we, we're getting another work by Crystal Pike next year. It's in, it's in that large-scale genre like Emergence is. It's called Seasons Canon. Uh, it's set to the, boy, and I'm going to forget who the composer is, that the, the recent sort of reworking of Vivaldi's Seasons, which is very popular. You'll hear it and you'll probably know it. Very large-scale work made for Paris Opera Ballet. It's very beautiful and uh, it's going to involve, involve the whole company plus, I know we're going to have professional division students involved too, and that's, uh, I think it'll be a really beautiful celebratory piece for the 50th anniversary, and I think that's coming in Rep 2 in November this year. And I, I'm quite certain she'll be here for that. I hope so. We've, been, we've spent five years trying to get this one on the books, so we're, we hope she'll be here. Uh, let me just go across the line, sure. Yeah, next, Richard. Max Richter, thank you, yes, Max Richter. It's his uh, sort of uh, reimagining of Vivaldi's Four Seasons. And it sounds like the Four Seasons Plus. So, yeah, it's, it's very engaging. Sandy. Do you have any comments about Olga Smirnova? Oh, Olga Smirnova? Um, Olga Smirnova is a, ballet who, a ballerina who has been with the Bolshoi Ballet. She has left the company. Uh, uh, because of her opposition to the war. She's been hired immediately by Dutch National uh, Ballet in the Netherlands, and she's immediately going to go into a new role there. It's the Ballet Raimondo, which is uh, one of the 19th century big works. Um, you know, I don't know her. I just know there's been, you know, interviews with her. I, I, I can't imagine... I, I know we all can't imagine anyone being uprooted. There's a lot of horrible being uprooted right now, and then there are other people in solidarity uprooting themselves um, to do that. So certainly is uh, in the limelight right now, and there, I know there's talk in Russia now about um, combining the Bolshoi Theater in Moscow with the, the Marinsky Theater up in St. Petersburg, which was how the Theaters were organized in the 19th century up till 1917, and now suddenly, uh, with this, uh, with the war going on and the instability with artists in Russia, there's talk now about combining those theaters again. So yeah, a lot of artistic turbulence, uh, as well as in everything else. Yeah. She's a remarkable dancer. Yeah, she's a great dancer. You know, she's worked a lot with Alexei Ratmansky. And uh, she's, I'm, I'm very glad that she has a place to work and to dance and, and contribute. So, yeah, thanks. Yes? Um, I'm just wondering if Justin Peck still dances with the company and if Crystal Pike still has pivot or has choreography taken over the <clears throat> I think this is a question about does Justin Peck still dance and Crystal, uh, Justin doesn't dance anymore, I think unless it's something very special one-off. I think he doesn't do ballet anymore. He was a soloist at New York City Ballet concurrently 
uh, with being the resident choreographer, but then stopped. Because uh, Justin not only is choreographing there, but for a lot of other companies and for film. Uh, he was the choreographer of Carousel on Broadway. He's really uh, branched out to a lot of uh, genres in which dance is involved. And I think likewise for Crystal. She's got her company Kid Pivot. She's very involved in creation process. You know, she likes to take quite a while to, to uh, work on a piece, and the genesis of a piece may take the better part of a year. So she's been really committed to that. I'm not sure what her current plans are, uh, but uh, I hope we can hear about them some when, when she's here in the fall. Yeah, we have time for one more. Would anyone else like to ask a question? Are we all set for the program? So, yeah, opening is, is, is gentle for us, but I think when that curtain goes up on plot point, just watch for those, watch for those uh, how-to slides that are going to come up and introduce us to all these, these really fun characters on stage. All right, well, thank you so much for being here. Remember, you, you're welcome to come back down for the talk back after the uh, show, and, and thank you for supporting the ballet and enjoy the performance.